You're listening to Feminist Killjoys PhD, an hour of feminism, pop culture, and politics as discussed by two professional Killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be discussing 90s nostalgia in the media, particularly in light of the upcoming Lorena Bobbitt documentary, with a focus on 90s women villains in scare quotes. But first, hi, Melody. Happy belated birthday. How are you you doing? Same to you. Thank you. Happy birthday to us. <laughs> um, I'm doing fine. I caught a cold from my nephews, who I've yeah. kissed multiple times, many times over the years with them having colds. And this is one of the first ones I've gotten. So consider myself lucky. Yeah. I had a nice birthday. It's snowing here. It's been really cold. It's the winter. Yeah. That's about it. It's pretty chill. It was hard going back to school. Did you have off all of last week, too, with teaching? Um, I had. To, I went to my Monday class. Yeah, half barely anybody showed up. Oh, that's up. right. You're Monday, Wednesday now. Yeah, and Monday, Wednesday, and but it was canceled on Wednesday. So yeah. I also had sort of a very long break, and yeah, it's always much harder to go back to work after that. Yeah, especially because everybody was like getting into the groove of the semester, and then right. it just stopped. Right. And now we have to get back into the groove. So it's gonna. Right. It's probably gonna be a weird semester, but. Yeah, that's about it. How are you doing? Well, as a lot of people know, as you know, and a lot of people know, um, if they get the newsletter or follow me on social media, I've had a rough couple of weeks. So our we had to put our dog to sleep unexpectedly, um, kind of unexpectedly. He had a his third back surgery. He's a little dachshund. And we. it seemed like he was going to be okay, but it's always a risk. You know, surgery is always a risk. And, you know, he's an he was 10 years old, so he was getting a little bit older. And he was okay, he was okay, and then suddenly he wasn't okay in the recovery process. And um, a couple days ago, wouldn't be able to talk about this without crying, but I've managed to sort of crawl out of the worst stages of grief um, that that you sort of go through in the very beginning. It's still, as people talk about very accurately, grief, you know, comes in waves. So it, it hits every once in a while still. Obviously, it's only been a week and a half or so. But I'm sort of functioning again. Uh, but it was really devastating. And uh, he was in St. Louis being at his sort of doggy grandparents. And so we had to sort of make an emergency flight to St. Louis. And it was just a really sort of traumatic um, experience for a lot of reasons. And so um, I'm feeling very sad about that still. And uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a sad thing. But again, sort of crawling out of it, there's been some some good things that have happened sort of in spite of that uh, the past couple of weeks as well. I taught a writing workshop at the loft, um, which is a literary center writing center in Minneapolis. That was no really big cool. deal. It was, it was pretty fucking cool. <laughs> I have to say it the was, loft it was, is, per, is big news. It's kind so. of, yeah, it's like kind of a fancy deal. So that was fun. What um, was the workshop about? Uh, writing a worthwhile think piece. How apropos. Indeed. To our lives. (laughs) Indeed. Yeah, it was really cool. And uh, I went to your birthday party, which was very fun. We played board games. And uh, I got to meet some folks that I, well, Tara in particular. Hi, Tara, if you're listening. Um, I had known Tara through you via Instagram, basically. And we finally got to meet in person. That was fun. And yeah, so hanging in there. I'm sure pet owners can relate to this sort of awfulness of the 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 way that it changes your your home life um in particular when you lose a member of your family that's usually living in your house with you so so that's that 
Losing yeah. a pet is the worst. It's the yeah. worst. There's nothing. There's no way to sugarcoat it. Yeah, it's true. And we will miss his little click clack of the toenails across it's the floor. It's true. It's true. Rest in peace, Cappy. Okay. Yeah. So, so moving on, before we get to our main topic, we wanted to mention an upheaval on Twitter that occurred, which feels kind of silly, but that's the way the world is now. Do you mean when Adam Levine took off his shirt at the Super Bowl? Ugh. <laughs> we could talk about like, that. Which Twitter upheaval, really? But, right, right. Um, Ugh. <laughs> Gosh, I just like, I hate. Is it Levine or Levine? Whatever. Whatever. The Maroon 5 guy. The Maroon Levine. 5 guy. I think it's Levine. You're right. I, like, dis- despise him in this very unique way. Like, I don't generally have such a viscerally, like, angry reaction to celebrities, even if they suck. I'm just like, okay, you suck. But I, like, loathe that man. I just, like, really detest him. I didn't watch the half Any show. reason? I can't quite put my finger on it. I mean, he's... You know, he's shitty. Like, I, I don't like his music. I, he's, you know, not – he sort of thinks – I think he sort of postures as being, like, kind of woke-ish, but definitely isn't, I think, in, in any, like, s- substantial way. I, I, like, very much hate his singing voice. And I think maybe, like, because he's tattooed, like, I don't know, he because he, he kind of looks like he – would maybe be like subculture-y, but he's like obviously not. And I, I don't I, I can't quite put my finger on it. I just really loathe him. Can I tell you one quick funny story about what you just said about him being subculture-y, but he isn't? Yeah. Do you remember it, this must have been like early 2000s and all the hardcore emo kids were wearing white belts. And I think we mm-hmm. put the belt loop like or the buckle like on the side of our pants. Uh-huh. So they were totally non-functional usually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The I think one of the first Maroon 5 music videos that came out, he's wearing a belt like that. <laughs> and I remember being at a house full of hardcore emo kids and everybody f- like being like, no, like, F <laughs> you. What is this Maroon 5? Like, who are you? They, t- they stole our belt. Like, our belt is now on MTV. It's the end. That is hilarious and amazing. So yeah. your disdain, like your intuition of disdain, like just so you know, harkens back to right. the first Maroon Five music video. Right, that's amazing. Yeah, and so I, you're right I like to think that I've evolved past caring about like subculture looks being like mainstream. Like, I mean, I mostly don't, I, like, I really don't give a shit. But clearly, there's something like my, you know, sixteen, seventeen year old heart is like still very protective of at that aesthetic, I guess. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. You get it. I mean, you yeah, know why it's... Yeah. Anyway, that is that is a funny story. Um, that's Thank actually you. not what we're talking about, though. No. We wanted to talk very quickly about... Um, so Barbara Ehrenreich, who is a credited journalist and writer, left-leaning, I would say, f- for the vast majority of the things that she writes and tweets and comments on, I would say she's further left than liberal. She wrote Nickel and Dimed, which is a pretty... Um, important book that sort of reveals sort of working class life. I think there's a lot of issues with that book. She's very much um, sort of anthropologically like 
putting herself in a position to try to learn what it's like to be poor. And that feels like a little bit slimy, but she also, it, it also revealed a lot of, you know, important things that got um, sort of class consciousness sort of uh, on a lot of people's radars that weren't thinking about it. In general, she's, she's left-leaning and has good politics. She is an older white lady to sort of position her identity. So she tweets in, re- in response to the to Marie Kondo, who is famed for tidying up the book in what is now a Netflix series. And she says, I will be convinced that America is not in decline only when our decluttering guru Marie Kondo learns to speak English. So that was the original tweet. Then Twitter went fucking crazy. And we're like, you're Barbara Ehrenreich is racist. Holy shit. Holy shit. She thinks Marie Kondo should speak English. Then Barbara Ehrenreich tries to clarify. She deletes that tweet. She's like, I don't think people understood what I was trying to say. Let me try to clarify. And do you want to read that one? Because that's the tweet that you saw. It says, I confess, I hate Marie Kondo because aesthetically speaking, I'm on the side of clutter. As for her language, it's okay with me that she doesn't speak English to her huge American audience. But it does suggest that America is in decline as a superpower. Okay. So... Given those things, I kind of understand why people thought that she was being racist and thought that Marie Kondo should speak, one, should speak English, and two, that America being in decline is a bad thing. Given her politics and who she is, that is not how I read it. I read it as actually an astute observation that the U.S., empire as sort of the superpower that it thinks it is, that signs of that have often been credited to that the vast majority of the globe like wants to learn to speak English because we're such a superpower that English becomes the sort of thing that you're that you should learn in order to sort of, you know, whether you're trying to do international business or just like be, you know, that it's important. It's important to learn English. The fact that so so that's one. And two, that she actually would be okay with America being in decline. So if you didn't know those two things, that one, like discussions about language, English um, being a sort of the most learned and, and uh, common sort of language that people try to learn as evidence of U.S. power, and two, that Barbara Ehrenreich actually isn't invested in American empire, it would sound racist. A lot of people are very much trying to make this like, this is an example of white imperial feminism. I just really disagree. And her third tweet in all of this, Mm -hmm. after the internet's exploding at her, because that's what the internet fucking does, she says, yikes, I do not mourn the decline of American empire and in fact have campaigned for it for much of my life. (laughs) And I heartily encourage the use of languages other than English everywhere and at all times. And so I think that should be enough to make people realize that this isn't a lot of people are calling it a non-apology apology. I think she just like wasn't clear and that people reading the tweet were ready to attack because that's what Twitter does. That's what the internet does. So can you read the deleted tweet again just to come full circle then now knowing all those things? Yes. It says, I will be convinced that America is not in decline only when our decluttering guru Marie Kondo learns to speak English. I think it was her choice of words learns to speak English because yeah. I think the racists in our country use that like learn English yep. 
Yep. So I, I think, think it was totally just a, right. po- a poor choice of words. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I agree that that's like, it's too loaded of a phrase to say. Yeah. <laughs> just like, don't ever put those words together in a sentence if you are not a racist. Like, don't do it if you're, I mean, don't be racist, but you know what I mean. So I agree. So anyway, it was just, it was a little bit disheartening because I think a lot of internet call-out culture is tearing down people who are actually on the right side of things, like the the right being like the left, <laughs> um, right. like the good side the of correct. things. The correct side of things. And, uh, you know, sure, older white women should definitely be called out on racism. I just, like, don't actually think this was an example no. of racism. No. So. And, and I wonder if she'll write a, co- a column about this now in the New York Times so she can really flesh out what she means. Because it is an interesting argument. Yeah. Especially when you think about how popular Marie Kondo is here and how she I don't want to say that she's refusing to learn English because I don't know her take on English right but most people I this is just an assumption so to correct me if I'm wrong but if there is international success that comes overseas to us I think almost always they speak English, whether it's mm-hmm. a celebrity or a movie or something that like mm-hmm. we have such a low tolerance for subtitles yep. in this country. And people know that. So if you want to be successful in the United States, you right. learn English. But Marie Kondo is proving that you do not need to know how to speak English right. to be a huge star here. And that yep. is, I think, Barbara's point that like we're at a turning point now. And, and Marie Kondo is, is an illustration of that. Right. Right. Yeah. And we could talk a lot more about this with cultural imperialism and the, and the shift to us choosing our own music and, and films right. coming to us differently. So it's, it's part of a larger shift, I guess, in yeah. the, in the world, which I, you with, which you and I would be happy to see. Exactly. And I think yes. Barbara also would. Um, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So team Barbara, yeah. <laughs> it's cool, but also yes, white lady feminism. But I, I, what you said, Rachel, like, I think people are missing the mark on this. I would agree. Because yeah. we, we'll critique white feminists right along with everybody else. For sure. Ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, but her point I just, is missed. Right. Anyway, moving on. What are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about Lorena Bobbitt because Jordan Peele is coming out with a four-part documentary about her that's coming out on Amazon on February 15th. And there was also a New York Times article written about her, kind of a feature piece about her and this new documentary coming out. And it kind of it exposed and reminded people of the reasons why Lorena Bobbitt was violent, physically violent, assaulted, cut off the penis of her husband. And just like Marshall Clark in the O.J. Simpson trial, uh, Tanya Harding, which we've talked about before on the show, because of the news media that was going that was of the norm in the 90s and kind of our collective memory we are forgetting some very very important aspects of these women's stories and so this documentary and this article is is trying to bring back the narrative that both Lorena Bobbitt and Jordan Peele and other people involved in the story want to tell which is there was a lot of domestic to start there was a lot of domestic violence wrapped up in her story that collectively we have forgotten or chose not to remember yeah. So we want to talk about all of that in in an organized fashion, as we always yeah. do. Right. And even more broadly than that, especially since we haven't watched the documentary yet, and I'm sure we would be able to dive in even deeper after we watch it. But that to sort of like take a step back, 
to to motion to what you talked about in terms of Tanya Harding and Marsha Clark, and I would also add Monica Lewinsky into that. Correct. All of these were mid-90s um, women of the news who had narratives that were told about them. And I think actually our age, our generation, Melody, are, are probably like older millennials are good to talk about this because as children, as, as kids who were, you know, what, 10, 11, 12, when this happened, we were going to intake the sort of surface of what the news talked about because at that age we probably weren't like going out of our way to like read Ms. Magazine, which they talked about kind of did go in a little more in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were getting very much the only, only, or at least in my recollection, I remember getting what I heard on the nightly news, what SNL made fun of that week, what, you know, the headlines of the newspaper were, what my family talked about around the dinner table. And those narratives were all so shallow about these women are crazy, basically. So so taking a step back about that, and then also I'm interested in sort of digging into why there's so much sort of 90s nostalgia. We have all of these examples of bringing these sort of 90s news stories back into the media with the OJ series, the Tanya Harding movie, um, you know, Monica Lewinsky is getting more of a platform and so on. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into all of this, but I, you know, obviously we both want to think about the intersection of race in all of this um, and things like that. So... Where do we begin? Well, actually, can we begin with a, a just a you, we tell each other what we knew about Lorena Bobbitt? Is it yeah, like, that's a great idea. So what was your story of Lorena Bobbitt if you had to tell somebody? So I remember basically that this woman cut off her husband's penis and that it was supposed you know, that it was really funny because she cut off her penis. Like it was like all, almost everything I remember hearing it ended up becoming a joke. I also have zero recollection of the fact that she was not a white woman. Every picture, you know, she was, she's a light-skinned Ecuadorian immigrant, but I think given 90s, like, news where it's not like there were videos playing as I scrolled through YouTube or something, you know, scrolled through Instagram or went to YouTube, so it's like I would hear white anchors talk about Lorena Bobbitt, basically, and see, see pictures, you know, in the newspaper or whatever. So I didn't, so I didn't know that she wasn't white is also something I remember. That's kind of it. I mean, I, I vaguely remember that her husband was not, you know, that, that her husband may have abused her, but that like was not the emphasis of the news at all. What about you? Very, very similar that it was something to laugh about that she cut off her husband's penis and that she was she was the crazy one and she was right. the problem. And also, I if if you would have asked me what her race and ethnicity were, I would have just guessed Caucasian. Same. Yeah. Which is so fascinating because there was so much news coverage. And if you listen to her testimony, she's clearly not. She doesn't speak English as her first language. Right. Her accent is very clear. There's um some of the testimony that was put on CNN is available on YouTube, for example. But. Even prior to YouTube. I mean, it was on the news all the time. Right. And so it's just fascinating to think about how she was whitewashed. Yeah. And I'll be curious. I really am I'm ex- I, uh, I'm very intrigued about what the documentary will, will reveal. In the trailer for the documentary, we do see one headline or some sort of like tabloid headline or something that says red hot Latina or something or hot angry Latina. So it does, there was at least some association of like the feisty Latina, but that was not the mainstream narrative. Like there was, so there was basically sideline racism, but 
one of the reasons I think perhaps it wasn't the narrative is that as you hear in her testimony, part of John Bobbitt's abuse of his wife, of Lorena, was also racist. In addition to being misogynist, it was also racist. So he would verbally abuse her using saying negative things about her not being a white woman, basically. So it's interesting because when race comes up in the trial, we see it because of John's racism, not because of her. She doesn't act, she doesn't behave like a stereotype of a like a fiery Latina. So it no. wasn't something the media could grab onto in that way. No, she's actually very shy and yeah. just quiet in general, yeah. soft-spoken. Yeah, the testimony's heartbreaking. It's she's yeah, just meek and clearly a a victim of trauma and abuse. So that's yeah, so those are our recollections and I think that's probably given our listenership age range, I'm guessing mm-hmm. a lot of people similar um, similarly have that have that recollection. So as you read in the article and what I'm sure we'll, as I know we'll see in the documentary, is that John Wayne Bobbitt verbally, sexually, and physically abused her um, throughout almost their entire marriage. And it was the buildup of that trauma, and he raped her the night that, that she cut his penis off as well, that the buildup of that trauma is what drove her to committing this act. So why do you think there is this resurgence now? Is it like a corrective? Because like when Jordan Peele watched the so part of this New York Times article is recalling how Jordan Peele was watching one of the O.J. Simpson trial because there's been a few lately. Right. Mm hmm. Um, so he's watching one of them. And in all of them, Marsha Clark is seen as a strong woman. And then you're like, oh, shit, like the way that the media portrayed her in the 90s is not r- correct as to who she actually was. Is this like a corrective or like what's what's going on? Because it the O.J. Simpson stuff came out before me, too. Um, mm-hmm. And we did get it totally wrong. Like the, the news narratives in the 90s were totally sexist. Mm-hmm. And... That wouldn't fly today, you know, but it also wasn't that long ago. And I don't think we've made so much progress to the point where, like, it's it's shocking what we got, what was considered okay news in the 90s. So, like, yeah, do you have a a theory as to why? As I was preparing for the episode, like, I mean, I don't have a conclusive answer at all, but I, I, some theories I have is that, is it, is it a thing, basically, that every 20 to 30 years society large writ large is interested in reflecting on basically 20 to 30 years prior because i'm thinking about the resurgence of woodstock for example like the second woodstock happened sort of as a result of nostalgia for the late 60s and early 70s mm-hmm. um and i remember as a as a young person like an adolescent basically being obsessed with the 60s like I was obsessed with hippie mm-hmm, culture mm-hmm. and I think and I saw it a lot of places like I remember buying like a little coffee table book at like Borders or something that was like all about the 60s and and that would have been you know 20 30 years prior as well but what's different about this though if if you don't mind me interjecting Please, yeah is that like this is like really specific to women like yeah. of all the stuff in the 60s, right, they picked Woodstock. Like that's really happy-go-lucky, right? There's a lot of positive things that happened in the 90s that we could just be. Right. You, As you've noted, it's very specific to these women who got a bad rap in the 90s and now are get to have this like 
this narrative retold in a way that they want told. Yeah. I mean, I think all of the people doing this work would say it's corrective. It's an attempt to, like, give justice mm-hmm. to narratives that that were not not okay. Um, so, yeah, I do. I mean, and I think the – who made Tanya – who made the heart Tanya movie, I, Tanya? I forget that filmmaker. Um, I'm, let me look real quick. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was because you love there, you love that film. I loved I, Tanya. <clears throat> loved, 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 loved. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the effort is corrective, but I'm I'm curious about any progress narrative that is sort of like, look how bad it was then. Good thing we're better now. You know, there's always that danger. The same <laughs> way that, you know, we talk about MLK, like, you know, oh, that racism was so bad during civil, you know, prior to the civil rights movement good thing we're not racist anymore like yeah nope. i feel so it's interesting so to answer your question the director is craig gillespie oh okay i guess i i thought it was somebody else but okay go ahead but then also to your point about good thing we're not sexist anymore i think our response shows that this is different because we're not saying we're like ashamed that we thought of that narrative that we believe that narrative like that's how i felt watching the oj stuff it's like holy shit why did i think marcia clark was a bitch like what's wrong with me she's awesome like she's my hero she's exact you know why didn't i have her see her as a role model when i was younger so it'll be curious to to see if the some of the response is well good thing we're not sexist like that anymore because our news still is fucking sexist right it's just different it's just different right right yeah, it's just not as blatant. Yeah, do you think, do you, th- I hope, I don't know. I mean, our responses are not the masses' response, but. Right. I don't know. I do think there is going to be a lot of sort of shock about the way that the media did handle it in retrospect, which just automatically leads to thinking that it is better now, but we just have to sort of unpack what better means. I also just want to say, because I have to, because I'm that killjoy. We just should be wary of saying that prosecuting attorneys should be heroes because prosecuting attorneys do very bad things. That's I hear. I'll say. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> but that. I hear you. I love, I mean, Sarah Paulson, is that who the actress was who played her? Her, her portrayal yeah. of Marsha Clark even got me, who hates prosecuting attorneys, to like really feel like emotionally invested in. Yeah. In and when I was, yes. Thank you for, thank you for Killjoy in that moment. I yeah. really appreciate mm-hmm. it. And when I was saying that, I was thinking about her in her office. She was just such not a lady, you know. Yeah, and I yeah. just wanted to. I just wanted more role models like that. Yes. So yes, I agree. Just, yeah, wasn't there's a even lot thinking to admire about, about her. Wasn't even and thinking also. that she was a prosecutor. <laughs> I was right. just like, right. Oh yeah, that would be yeah. me smoking in my office and right, right. falling in love with the, <laughs> right. the other guy, the hot guy. Okay, right. moving on. <laughs> One thing we could bring in is is what created the the conditions that enabled the media to be such a fucking train wreck about these women's narratives. And uh, I was going to say friend of the show. She, we don't know her IRL, but, um, and Hel- <laughs> no, Anne Helen, she, she's a friend and, of the show at this she, point. She, I mean, at this point, she is. <laughs> um, and Helen Peterson, who we've talked about a lot, who we mostly tend to agree with, um, who is ex com scholar, former academic. She wrote in her newsletter about, about this, uh, about this upcoming documentary and she tied in this notion of um post-feminism which i think we've defined and talked about on the show but she's suggesting that this moment in the 90s when there was so much ability to just attack women 
and create narratives of them as like crazy monsters was directly coinciding with the shift to post-feminism. And I'll define, I'll define that for the listeners. So it was sort of popularly defined by Rosalind Gill, who's a scholar, media scholar. And she argued that post-feminism should be thought of as a contemporary sensibility that is shaped by neoliberalism and, quote, by stark and continuing inequalities related to gender, race, and class. And she's suggesting that elements of this sensibility include an obsessive preoccupation with the body, the shift from women being portrayed as submissive, passive objects to being portrayed as active, desiring sexual subjects, the preeminence of notions of choice, being oneself and pleasing oneself, a focus on self-surveillance and discipline, a makeover paradigm, the reassertion of sexual difference, and media messages that are characterized by irony and knowingness. Now, that's a lot of stuff that we definitely don't have time to unpack today. Take any number of our media courses, and I bet you would get more in depth with that with us. The important thing is to note some examples of this shift would have been things like Sex in the City, Allie McBeal, like the uh, Girls Gone Wild. What are some of the other things that some of those texts mention? There's like bra ads, like Wonder Bra, the push-up bras, and mm-hmm. says they'll say like, I don't cook meat or like, I don't cook for anybody. Right. Like right. things where they're like rejecting normative feminine stereotypes, but also reifying them by having it be like a push-up bra ad. So we're basically Perfect. like reclaiming our sexuality and being like, yes, we're going to be sexual objects. And But like <laughs> the way that I see it is very much like our sexuality is in our control now, but it's still wrapped up in capitalism and selling women's bodies. Right. The way and that patriarchy. And the patriarchy. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's still a very particular type of sexuality that's allowed to be sexually aggressive like that. Which is like often blonde, big breasted, skinny women. Thin white women. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Not to say that there's anything wrong with being super hot and having a bra coming off and right. not cooking. That's totally <laughs> right. great. It's just the way that it's it's that it's working within the capitalistic system. So Ex- exactly. And so, yeah, that was a perfect example. And everything that Melody just said, these are examples of like, all of these portrayals, the the Wonder Bra ads, Allie McBeal wearing short skirts in the office, if anybody watched that show, Carrie Bradshaw getting being allowed to buy shoes and Samantha Jones being able to have sex with whoever she wants. All of these portrayals of women sort of having power through these very individual choices. That's where the sort of neoliberalism comes in. Like, mm-hmm. it's not, you know, none of these even though they're technically occupying jobs in in ways that they maybe weren't allowed to before, there's still all of this like structural inequality, um, particularly for women of color. Fat women don't get the same abilities that people, women with disabilities, there's, there's still not actual mm-hmm. emancipation of women. It's just that particular types of women get to be individually empowered um, through choices that don't actually make a difference in any su- substantial way. And all of these media sort of portrayals of that sort of makes it seems like feminism has won, so we don't need feminism anymore. Exactly. Like, look at these powerful women. Like, women get to be just as sexually aggressive as men. Women get to work in lawyers' offices. Women get to have paychecks that enable them to buy their own shoes and live alone. Like, so, like, who needs feminism anymore? So that's sort of where all of this comes in. And the way it relates to what Anne Helen Peterson is saying, this relates to... Monica Lewinsky, Tanya Harding, Marsha Clark, and Lorena Bobbitt, is that if if we're over feminism, it's easier to sort of construct women as as villains because there's this 
semblance of a level playing field. Does that, yep. is that sort of, I think that's sort of what she's getting at. Peterson doesn't sort of expand as much as we're getting into it, but I think that's, I think that's sort of what she's getting at. And I think I agree to an extent. I don't know. What do you think? No, that's it. I mean, that's exactly how post-feminism works. It's that last thing that you said that because we've gotten to a certain point and we're empowering ourselves, it's not sexist to make Marsha Clark and Tanya Harding into villains. That's not sexism because they're in their own space. Is that what you were asking? Yeah. No, yeah. Th- that's totally the right read. Yeah. Okay. So it's yeah. n- so then we went through this era where it's like, well, it's not sexist because women have reached equality now. And so we can paint them villains just like we paint men villains. But if you take a step back, we don't, it's not an equal playing field. Um, right. And the way that they're villainized is very gendered versus the way that you know, I mean, John Wayne Bobbitt, for example, was not villainized in, in the same particular at ways. At all. Right, at all. He was an abuser. He was a right. rapist. He yep. forced her to have an abortion. Yep. And Ugh. said that, and was joking in the abortion clinic that she was going to die. Yeah, it was, it's, it's, I mean, the, he's a horrible, And yet she's the one human. that ends up being right. the quote unquote crazy person. Right, right. That the jokes are all about her. I can't, right. her demeanor at this point, I mean- she said that she went through decades of therapy. Yeah. But still, are you kidding me? Just to go through all that, the media exposure, and then yeah. to be treated that way after testifying in great detail about what her husband did to her. Right. And then she still ends up being the bad guy. Yeah. It's super fucked up. <sighs> super fucked up. Another thing I want to bring in. So as we said, she's not a white woman, although I think... Melody and I are probably not the only people in the U.S., at least, who thought she was, given news coverage. But I'm wondering and I'm thinking about, but Marsha Clark, Monica Lewinsky, and Tanya Harding are. And I was trying to think of equivalents of black and brown women who maybe got the same sort of, you know, sort of sensationalist sensationalist narratives. And I really couldn't, past or present, in the same way. And so I'm, I'm just interested in that. And I don't have an answer, a specific answer for that either. But my one sort of theory is that Mm. black and brown women are either sort of invisible and or always already presumed to be sort of engagers of violence, of of, of criminality, basically. So they're always criminalized, always, already. Whereas white women, if there's a criminal activity, that's seen as exceptional and one thing that sort of demonstrates this in a really awful way is if we think about statistics about who comprises um, women's prisons. And of course, it's just like in men's prisons, primarily black and like almost entirely black and brown women. And also primarily women who are in prison are 86. So I'm reading some stats right now. 86 percent uh-huh. of them have experienced sexual violence, 77% have experienced partner violence, and 60% have experienced caregiver violence. So the vast majority of these women, who are also disproportionately women of color, are also victims of violence. And oftentimes that's the reason they're in prison at all. It's because they're in these domestic violence suits protecting themselves, and then they get thrown in jail for protecting themselves, basically. That just feels important to sort of bring in. Like, we don't have these narratives. And obviously, the media has no problem, like, saying fucked up shit about women of color. We know that. But it's not in the same way that these women were were sort of sensationalized. And 
And I'm not trying to erase the fact that Lorraine is a woman of color, but I think that the media did actually try to erase that in producing this narrative. What do you think? What do I think? I mean, you're totally right. The only thing that comes to mind of recent is when the victims of R. Kelly were in the mm-hmm. documentary um, and they kind of got their moment to be seen as truth tellers, which is so fucked up to begin with. So let's yeah. just be real on that. But that like they were not liars. They weren't trying to get, a, you know, some money or whatever that they had that redemption. Mm-hmm. But but I think what we're looking for is like a narrative in which, you know, it finally comes out and is seen by the masses that like the welfare queen doesn't exist like we know that that doesn't Mm -hmm. exist but like are we gonna actually be able to have a story now where we unpack that black women were not stealing welfare in the 90s you know right right um i think i think what your your point though about all the domestic violence and how these women black and brown women who aren't in jail have been victims of that there's a story to be told there but i can't think of like a specific woman you know that was highlighted exactly exactly Right, because it's 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 normalized in a way that yes, the stats. I mean, are one reason that it that it unfortunately feels normal because when you have all of the conditions that white supremacy and racism and capitalism produce that make that more common, you know that 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 is technically like more you know common or normal, but also like because of those links that white supremacist culture says, well, there's always criminality in in those, you know, quote unquote, those communities, whatever. So there, there there's just that right. not the sensational aspect, which is, I mean, I'm just repeating myself, but. No, but but if Lorena has been whitewashed, then then it is a unique crime because it's it also involves a white partner, you know, right. but if it's right. this horrible black on black crime, it's so normalized that why would it make news? You right. know, because all these women that you mentioned are white, except for right. Lorena, but was whitewashed. And so right. that's that's the um, the sensationalism. And and because she had a white partner, I think it was so much easier to whitewash her. Yeah. Yep. yep. Because yep. she was yep. in white culture. Even if she wasn't white, she was part of white culture. So it's like, in right. white culture, we do not do these things. Right. Right. You know? Exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. I would say oh, the, the other person I wanted to bring up who wasn't mentioned in, in any of in the NYT article was um, Amy Fisher. Um, do you remember Amy Fisher? Yes, she- I do. So that she's another one that I would bring in who basically she was 17 years old having an affair with an adult man and they basically plotted to kill his wife but she of you know she sort of went down as the crazy murderous one um mm-hmm. and he didn't you know suffer the same sort of reper- repercussions and you know it wasn't and if, and if she was 17 and he was an adult so there's that that whole dynamic she and she was also painted as totally fucking crazy which, you know, I'm not saying she was, you know, ent- entirely mentally stable to to sort of be a part of any of that. But she was also a victim of yeah. this adult man's sexual pred- predation. Is that the word? Predatory? Yeah. Predatoryness. That sounds good. Um, and she – why did I bring this up? Oh, because I think there are some moments with Lorena Bobbitt, Amy Fisher, and Tanya Harding, certainly, when we do see that intersection of, like – White, the white trash sort of thing coming in. Again, Lorraine Obama mm-hmm. is not white, but we do see the sort of trash element because I think those, those three people, yes, it's white culture and specifically sort of like white trash culture is, is sort of what we see there. And although that sort of people are less shocked by criminality in white, yeah. in white trash spaces. Yep. 
you know, we still we it, it still was sensational enough because whiteness ultimately. So yep, yep. So yeah, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, to think and I and I'm. It'll just be more, fa- you know, it'll be fascinating in 20 years to think, to look back in our media. And we obviously, ter- you know, we critique media narratives all the time. So we know some of what's going on already. But yeah. um, it's still interesting. I'm sure we're not seeing certain things because we're. We're a part we're, of it. We're part of, we're part of it. Yeah. So uh, it would yeah. be to that point, too. It would be really fascinating to look back at feminist publications, not just Ms., but maybe some feminist journals of the time and see if anybody was making these critiques. Yeah. Because I bet you that there's no way that there was like that feminist studies or women's studies departments weren't. Right. I yeah, we out should, about Yeah. That. We should do an academic journal search for these, for Lorena Bobbitt's name. That would be interesting. The, yeah. I mean, cause this is the other thing about media culture, right? Like as, as shitty and, call out culture as we just talked about in terms of the Barbara Ehrenreich, like as, as much like vitriol as there are, is on the internet, like social media can also hold people accountable. And like, mm-hmm. I think one reason the media couldn't get away with something like this is because Twitter wouldn't let it, <laughs> which right. is a good thing. Like th- right. that, those call outs are good. So, which I only bring up in relation to what you said, because yeah, maybe some feminist journalists and fem, you know, people on the ground, like activists and people with feminist consciousness were thinking these thoughts, but they didn't have Twitter to talk about it on, you know? Right. And we as young people did not have access to those spaces anyways. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. But yeah, even I wonder if like Riot Girl, see, if I had a whole other life, I would just start this research project. Like, let's look at the the feminist discussions of the 90s around these women. Yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I love this topic. Let's keep talking about it on air. If the topic comes up or whatever, right? It's super interesting, and I'm I'm very excited to to see the documentary. I trust Jordan Peele to to do a good job. I'm glad that mm-hmm. he's he's behind it. So so I'm excited to see it. Great reading, watching, and listening. With what are you RWLing? Uh, I have to give a shout out to Fetch, uh, How a Bad Dog Brought Me Home by Nicole J. Georges, which I finished reading in two days, the same week that my dog died. Um, I'd been saving it because it's about Nicole Georges's first dog dying. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's mostly it's about the dog's life. And then the end, the dog dies. But I knew that the dog was going to die. So I didn't want to read it when Captain was alive because I just didn't want to be sad. I didn't. I had hoped that it wouldn't be so soon that I would be reading it. But um, but I did. And it's such a warm, delightful, funny book that just makes me – I really like Nicole Georges's podcast, and I follow her on social media, so I see, like, her little drawings and stuff. But it's the first time I actually read one of her books cover to cover. She's super talented, and I we had a very – I mean, anybody who is part of, like, punk feminist subculture in the early 2000s will – do a lot of heavy relating to um, sort of the cultural references. And I just really loved it. So I want to give a shout out to that. Watching uh, Saw Spider-Man after your birthday party on Sunday. uh, Really liked it. Really, really good. Very heartwarming and enjoyable. Fun soundtrack. Good 
method of doing diversity that isn't like we are doing diversity like it it didn't feel hit you over the head with it or heavy-handed it was mm-hmm. i i really enjoyed it and also watching russian doll on netflix Curious. is it good i'm really excited about it i think so okay i'm still on the fence okay um i would love i'd love if you watch it like let's talk about it because i'll because I'll be she was my favorite who's the actor Actress Natasha Leone. Natasha Leone. She was my favorite on Orange is the New Black. Yeah. She's, I just love she's her. Great. So, yeah. Uh, a lot of people's queer roots because she was in But I'm a Cheerleader, which is a very important gay movie for a lot of a lot of queers. And then listening to um, the artist Black spelled um, six L-A-C-K pronounced Black. What's up and- with these hip hop rapping people <laughs> with their number names? Number names. <laughs> it's a very, it's a, uh, I'm listening to his most recent album, um, East Atlanta Love Letter, and it's very pretty, um, good work music. Um, the last song called Stan is like a very beautiful love song that just feels romantic and nice for February Valentine's Day month. So yeah, what about you? I'm reading the book, How to Not Always Be Working, A Toolkit for Creativity and Radical Yay. Self-Care, gifted <laughs> to me by Rachel. Um, I read like half of it on the bus. I didn't do, so it's like, it's um, a book, it's a very short book written by Marley Grace, and it is part workbook, part, you know, info dump on like how to not be working all the time. It's really interesting. I would love to like have a broader discussion about it. There's some things to fill out that I didn't fill out because I was on the bus and it was going to jiggle everywhere. But it's cool. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I like it. I like it. There's things, obviously, that I'm like, hmm, interesting, because she's an I've gathered that she's she makes a lot of her she does a lot of her work online on Instagram yeah. and on social yeah. media. And so it's an she's an interesting person to write that book um, because she does work in a really different way. But I think it speaks to a lot of the work that we do, no matter what industry you're in, that it's, there's never a stopping point that you could always be working. So, so that's been really great. I was watching a bunch of the Super Bowl ads and the Super Bowl and the Adam Levine performance, which was terrible. Yes. We had a great conversation about that in my classroom. Very interesting about Janet Jackson and Adam Levine for another time. And listening to i've been really getting more into ambi- ambient music did i did i talk to you about drone jazz yet oh no I, I like the sounds of it. i mean i don't like the sound of the word drone but it's not I, I, it's, I like it in relation to music it's a really obscure form of jazz that i list that i found out because i was listening to community radio and they were playing this weird repetitive music it's like, what is this? And then the DJ comes in, you've just been listening to drone jazz and then starts talking <laughs> about drone. And it's this very, like, very subculture jazz thing, but it's basically ambient jazz. That's so it's cool. awesome. It's super, super awesome. Cool. And I'm trying to collect artists because it was big in the 60s and it, not that that stuff isn't up on YouTube or anything. So I have to do right. some good research, but it's interesting. It's cool. It's a cool genre. So I like listening to that because I really like listening to sounds when I'm working, like you were yeah. saying, good working music. Yeah. And I really got into that witchy woman that you were telling me about that does Julie. really cool. Juliana Barwick. Yeah, I got into her too. So cool. Her tab's Yay. always open. Cool. You should um you I'll I'll send you my yoga playlist or like always all that all that stuff. So I'll send you some more ambient stuff. Cool. Yeah. Yay, well FKJ. Power. Hey.